This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And welcome to Series 6, Episode 6 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello, how are you? I hope that whenever you're listening to this, you're having a good day. Um, it's Saturday night, I'm in Belfast, and I'm currently recording this intro underneath a duvet because I haven't got my equipment with me and I also still don't have the internet at home. So I'm recording this on my phone. So apologies if the, uh, the quality is not quite as good as normal. Uh, the interview was done in a studio the brilliant conversation that I've got to share today with Paula Ekpan. I can't wait for you to hear it. It's such an interesting one. She's so brilliant. She's so interesting. It's a bit of a different episode about actually. It's about history and culture and lots of different things. And I'm so excited to share it with you. So uh, I look forward to sharing that in just a minute. But as always, I will share some brilliant listener emails. You guys always get in touch with me. You know how much I love hearing from you. And let's have a couple of let's have a couple of uh, audience emails before we get into today's conversation. Hi, Susie, long-time listener, first-time writer inner. I just wanted to say thank you for your podcast and for like-minded friends. It's a weekly relief to listen to your podcast and hear stories from our community and share queer joy, which feels increasingly in short supply at the moment. I'm currently training to be a therapist and have a long-term dream of setting up my own queer therapy centre. The training is life-changing and transformative, but also difficult and challenging at times. It would take me six years plus to qualify and finally get where I want to be, which feels like a long way off. Listening to your show every week provides me with a gentle reminder of why I'm doing this. From the guests to the listeners who write in, the show really makes me feel connected with my community and motivates me to want to help and uplift those who are having to constantly come out and battle with the homophobia or transphobia, which seems so present in our society at the moment. So a massive thank you. Hope you're settling into your new house and your family are well. Really hoping to be able to see you at a Sheffield or Manchester show in the future. Also, big shout out to my amazing girlfriend, Jen, who's also a queer therapist and inspires and motivates me every day. I really am so lucky to have her in my life. Bye, 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 bye. And that's from Laura, who says she's more than happy for me to share her name. Uh, thank you so much for getting in touch, Laura. Wow, a queer therapy centre, that sounds amazing. Go for it. And six years sounds like a while, but I realised this week that I've been doing stand-up for nearly 14 years. So much of my adulthood. All of... Yeah, I mean, almost all of it. And things that you care about often do take a long time. And I bet you'll learn loads in those six years and I bet that they'll, they'll inform everything that you do, which, which will make it all worth it. 
But thank you so much for writing in. And I'm so delighted that this this podcast gives you a lift every week, a weekly relief. Uh, that's a lovely way of putting it. Um, and thank you for reaching out and shout out to your girlfriend, Jen. Hi. OK, let's have another one. Hello, Susie. Firstly, I want to say I love your podcasts. The podcast is one of my favourite things to listen to. I'm an out and proud dairy girl. I've been listening to your podcast like a religion. I think which makes the podcast so enjoyable is your voice. Oh, that's nice to say. Your voice is so genuine and welcoming. This is not me it's blowing smoke up your ass. It's clear from how you read each and everyone's coming out stories, as you do as though they're important to you as they are the author. You listen, you really listen. I came out age 24. At the time, I thought I was too old to do this and that I should continue with my lie. I lived with a man and I took him on a journey he didn't realise he was part of and it wasn't fair. I knew my feelings were different to that of someone who identified as heterosexual. Looking back, I think I always knew I was gay. Even as far back as never missing a day of school for eight years because my P4 teacher was just so sweet. I knew I was gay, like you preferred the word gay to lesbian, which I always felt guilty about until I heard many lesbians say they prefer the term gay. As I said above there, I came out at 24, and you know you never stop coming out once you start. The thing is, I'm now 37. 13 years later, I finally feel out. I have wrote a loosely biographical comedic play about coming out, and the reception was amazing. It wasn't until I watched that play, a play that I wrote, that I felt wholeheartedly proud. I felt proud because I knew I'd reached people and educated people. I was so proud of how I did life and continue to do life. I had a massive tug of war and carried a massive shame and realised my journey was and is a story to tell. Since the play, I've joined the Derry City Pride Committee for 2023, which will be 30 years of pride in Derry. How amazing. I sat at that committee meeting surrounded by like-minded people and felt like I had come out again. This time, I did it with a great sense of pride, an overwhelming sense of pride. I have a little local radio show on Saturday mornings, and I try to use that platform to help get the message of LGBTQIA information out there. Up until now, I feel feel like I was taking baby steps to come out. Only now I feel my true, authentic, unapologetic self. Now I get to love and live truthfully. Thank you for your podcasts, and please keep them going. Don't stop. They are needed. I heard... Our very own local lad, Adam B, on your show last week and your conversation with him will help so many here in this town. Derry is categorised as a city, but it feels more like a large town in that it's small and everyone knows everyone. Coming out is still difficult here, but Adam B saying it's okay on your show will help. More importantly, it will help so many young people, so thank you, thank you. If you fancy coming to Derry for our 30 years of pride, you and your family are welcome as my guests. Take care and keep doing all that you do. Rosie. Ah, thank you so much for getting in touch, Rosie. I wanted to share this because, as I mentioned at the top, I'm in Belfast, so I'm just down the road from you today. Um, I'm so pleased that you, uh, that you that you feel like you get to, to to be yourself now. That's all we can ever do, is it? Just constantly taking steps to feel more authentically yourself. And it's so interesting that you mentioned about calling yourself a gay woman. Paula and I have a conversation in this chat that's coming up about how we both used the word gay for years and we're both now using the word lesbian a little bit more and why that is and how we both feel about it. So it really resonated with me. It was so interesting that you sent this email in the week that I had that conversation. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, it was serendipitous. But thank you so much for reaching out and uh, good luck with your play. I I hope that, that Derry Pride is amazing. I mean, if I can make it, sure, I'll be there. 
Right. Thank you, as always, to everyone that gets in touch. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I always love to hear from you. But now let's go to a conversation with historian and writer, the brilliant Paula Ekpan. Oh, listener, I'm very excited to share my guest with you today. Paula Akpan is a writer, a brilliant one. Her words leap off the page with an urgency. She writes about blackness, queerness, communities, arts and entertainment, and I have long been a fan of her writing. Whether it's articles on police brutality and violence, what it means to travel globally as a black lesbian, or whether we can ethically enjoy Love Island. It's always a great, informative and engaging read. Paula also created the Black Queer Travel Guide, which I think we can all agree is something that we need more than ever at the moment. You might have seen her writing in Vogue, The Independent, Stylish, Vice and so many more. And I know that she is currently in the process of writing her debut book, which sounds amazing. I'm sure we're going to get onto that later. So I am so delighted that she's created a little nugget of time for me and you today. Welcome to the show, Paula. Thank you. That was such a nice introduction. Well, I only ever interview people that I want to talk to. <laughs> so that's the great thing about doing your own podcast. Doesn't matter how many episodes there are, doesn't matter when it goes out. It's just me <laughs> wanting to, uh, me going, I really like what she's got to say. I'm going to get her in a room and see if she'll chat to me. I love those little selfish projects because it's like, <laughs> it's okay, you're a new friendship group. me to do something, but I'm having fun. So really, who's winning? But that isn't that, isn't that the trick of work? Yeah. If you can find something where you're like, oh, this is this is what I want to be doing anyway. Mm, mm. And I think also like when you are burnt out or depleted by it, then mm. it kind of, I think it gives you more basis or drive or reason to like replenish yourself. Yes, Sometimes I find that because like, like you mentioned, I write about police brutality. Yes. Oh my God, difficult, obviously, very hard work. Yeah. I mean, that I've read a lot of articles that you've written about sort of things that have happened to people whilst they've been in custody or things that have happened before they're in custody. Um, and it must be draining, like physically, emotionally, spiritually, like everything. Yeah, I would say that the hardest article that I've written was like a piece for Vice that was like paying homage to 12 victims mm. of police brutality, state-sanctioned violence. Yeah. And... I had basically been approached by my editor, Zing, at Vice, who was fantastic. And she kind of wanted a tribute to each of these people, but through the words of people who loved them or had known them. And it was so much hard work going through inquest reports and all kinds of newspaper articles because I basically made a list of every black person who has died in police custody or um, in a mental health crisis, related crisis. And then it was kind of like crossing off people on the list who I couldn't find enough about, who I couldn't find words from their families, who all I had were, you know, these reports via inquests, for example. And yeah, so it was really hard and it was in the midst of the infamous summer 2020, Black Square summer. Mm. And just, I think this is kind of when the love and the passion and the commitment to a project or to a community, it becomes quite difficult for one person to kind of try and hold. And I was literally just, it took me, on the first day of working on it, 
across five hours, I cried like four times, like as in like on the floor, because after writing all of these loving kind of tributes, so like writing about how Cherry Gross, who was shot and then later died as a result of that injury in Tottenham. Actually, no, sorry, not Tottenham. Yeah, no, it was Tottenham. Um, No, I'm lying. It was Brixton. Fuck. This is the thing with being a historian. You have so many things <laughs> in your head. <laughs> you got like Just a file like, of facts. Oh my gosh. It's so, so difficult. And my friend Jade, who has the... A memory of just a beast. Like, <laughs> she's going to pull me up on this. But Cherry Gross was a lover of Motown. Right. And her children always talked about how um, when they'd come home, shit, there would just be some Motown coming through the windows, etc. And then at the end, I'd have to say, yeah, um, no one was charged for this. And, you know, police were suspended without pay or suspended, yeah. whatever, and then released. So, yeah, sorry, I really just... You see, no, I, but that's, <laughs> that's that's how conversations go sometimes, and it's important. But I think that's important because I think that quite often the emotional upheaval—I don't know if that's the right word—of being sort of the conduit of stories, of telling, of of getting the the word out. I yeah, I've not, I guess I've not really considered that um, that much. But as someone, as a journalist, as a writer, that must be something that is, yeah, heavy. Mm, absolutely. I think there are like a lot of defining kind of moments across my time as a writer, yeah. journalist. You'll be interviewing people. So, for example, I interviewed Wayne Haynes, who was a DJ at the New Crossfire. Like it was his sound system mm-hmm. that was playing the party. And he was describing realising that there was a fire in the house and trying to escape and things like that. And like it's those moments of connection when you really realise that you are talking to someone who lived through something that you read about that is very formative to what we understand about black resistance, black civil uprising Mm -hmm. in the UK. And I I get to talk to you. And I also get to try and document it in a way that I am putting your words in front of maybe a different audience, a new audience, or um, introducing people to this account, this specific account. Mm. Um, Yeah, there's something really like just so powerful about having those those moments of, wow, what you just shared was incredible and I cannot wait to get away, transcribe this and then write about it and try and present it in a way that dignifies Mm. and actually encapsulates like well what you are trying yeah, to like convey justifies you sharing it with yeah, me yeah almost. yeah um but then there's also listening to older black people so obviously a lot of what i've done is around like histories of black people mm-hmm. in like contemporary histories of black yeah. people in this country and realizing that people are talking to you about things that they didn't realize were so bad when they were younger and then it's upon having to say it out loud to someone that you almost hear it sinking in over the phone. So one of my friend's fathers, I was able to interview him and he was talking about how when he was a nine-year-old boy riding on a bicycle around his estate in like North London, he was stopped by the same police three times on that same day 
just a nine-year-old kid riding a bike and this was you know when we think about the impact of sus law where Mm -hmm. you could where police had the power and you know still somewhat in existence today Mm -hmm. in a different iteration um to just stop people on suspicion that they were going to commit some sort of crime and I was really hearing, like, as he was describing this, and it's just, I was wondering just how often do you get to talk about this? And not just with me, but, you know, there are a lot of people who need, especially elders, elders in oppressed, stigmatised, marginalised communities, Mm -hmm. you know, black people, black queer people, queer people Mm -hmm. in general. There are so many experiences that they've probably gone through that desperate, they need, like, help. Yeah. You know, they need a professional to actually take you through this because it's a lot. It's a lot to be a nine-year-old kid mm-hmm. and to already have it hammered into you that you are suspicion-worthy mm-hmm. and you're actually not doing anything. You're just riding your... You're a child. Yeah. And what does? how does that then shape the rest of your life? This man who, you know, has gone on to have wonderful kids, mm-hmm. you know, citing my friend. Yeah. Um, but, like, how does that shape how he parents and maybe how he his attitude to the police today his children's attitudes like and yeah. even how you would view yourself as a nine-year-old how you would right how, how you would carry that absence that. of innocence yeah so Just early on so i think that is something that is really striking when trying to yeah just tell or at least facilitate the telling of people's stories. I think I definitely see myself as a facilitator, as like a conduit mm-hmm. and just yeah, someone who can maybe I can I can tap away at a laptop at a keyboard. Mm-hmm. So for people who are maybe less comfortable doing that, then I can yeah. be someone who can share your story in a way that hopefully will access more people. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? 
Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Were you always interested in storytelling, like as a, as a child? That's such a good question. I was interested in reading stories, mm-hmm. but then and still now, I do not figure myself a fiction writer in right. any way. So I, I always thought of storytelling in terms of fiction mm-hmm. and the fabulous. <laughs> and, you know, I love sci-fi. Dystopians are sure. my bag. Um <laughs> But I never, I guess, realised that storytelling could take this, you know, non-fiction, realistic, historical space for me specifically, maybe until maybe like six, seven, eight years ago. Because like I had a really important conversation or series of conversations with one of my best friends, Jade Bentle, who's also a historian. And she was just like, you are a contemporary historian. And, she, you know, this work that we've just talked about, the Vice article mm-hmm. and these various interviews, like, even though at this point I hadn't, you know, done my master's and my degree was in sociology, like, storytelling takes on different forms. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I'm really excited to grapple with, especially in the book, which will be coming out whenever it comes out whenever it's written yeah uh, <laughs> do you want to give me the, the top line of what the book's about oh okay i don't want to i don't want to butcher it so please can you do it okay so i would say when we ruled which is going to be published by headline in 2024 traces the lives and legacies and histories of 12 african queens and warriors and regents um so we're thinking yasantwa of the Ashanti Kingdom in what is now called Ghana, facing off with the British who essentially, as always, wanted Mm -hmm. to plunder and pillage. And, you know, through to more mythical figures who have completely shaped what the continent looks like. We're also thinking about Ranavalona the first, who is understood by traditional historians as Bloody Mary of Madagascar, but also the fact that she was juxtaposed against Queen Victoria, who was the great white queen. So like journalists and missionaries who were traveling between Britain and Madagascar would really focus on her kind of savage femininity. And she was the anti-hero to our pure queen victoria kind of thing and i'm really excited to grapple with it from a black queer Mm. you know feminist lens and really pull apart these questions of how do these historians positions and the spaces that they hold and the fact that yes they are very much old white men who you know some of the historians that I've been citing in my research they were colonial administrators Mm -hmm. of these regions so like how do these colonial administrators who then go on to write these histories how have they shaped our understanding of these 12 figures who we know some of them to a great degree like Cleopatra and some of them like Rana Valona, literally, no, literally nothing. Yeah, so interesting, isn't it, when you look at things like that and you look at sort of the history that you and I would have been taught at school mm-hmm. and, you know, I know it's something that comes up more and more in conversation now, quite rightly so, but it's about sort of dismantling those preconceived ideas of who owns these sections of history and who gets to tell these stories. Exactly, exactly. And just really grappling with, like, 
and what are the consequences today yeah. of a very particular kind of storytelling, a very particular kind of historical narrative. And presumably like a way of talking about a group of people. Exactly, exactly. Like, oh my gosh, I love talking about history. <laughs> <laughs> please do, please Such do. Such a nerd. Yeah, so I think something that I really learned across my masters is how can we, as historians, dignify people who have already experienced unimaginable horrors and you know thinking about enslavement for example Mm -hmm. and I had a a whole module around you know British Empire to Empire Windrush and my supervisor and lecturer Christina love my life love so much (laughs) Um, and for example it's just thinking about wording so rather than using slaves thinking about enslaved people yes because how even the linguistics of how we describe people and talk about people like there's a dehumanization wrapped up in the simple word of slaves like if you at least consider that they were people who were kind of emptied of their own bodily dignity then what does that do to the history that we're now building like what kind of ethics of care can we employ like how can we try and limit further damage especially thinking about the damage not just and the harm not just in the enslavement of these people but also like how their histories were written or not written yeah so a lot of what we'll find about enslaved people are in the footnotes if even there yeah you know like some evidence of people who ever existed would be found in wanted posters because a slave owner you know he's looking for the enslaved person who has run away yeah that is how we know that they existed exactly so there's a lot of fantastic work that i've kind of engaged with where people are taking these scraps of source material Mm. and trying to build beyond that so there's one historian called marissa j fuentes who has a book called dispossessed lives and using literally just like a tiny poster of a you know runaway enslaved person is able to trace and track like what this person would have seen if they ran in this particular direction how there might have been gallows over there where you know there were other um runaway enslaved people things like that and just like how you can how you can try and honor and reduce harm as best you can i think there's a whole body of ethics wrapped up in history work which i think is really really important i think that there is a view of history being very like stale and stagnant which is rightfully so especially within the academy but also if we begin to think that history isn't just produced within those ivory towers in those walls but there are everyday history like yeah. historical experts there are everyday storytellers and the reason why we went on to talking about my book which I now remember why um is that part of my sample writing basically to accompany each one of these histories I'm going to be interviewing 12 women and femmes who 
come from those regions mm. and have grown up with the influence of that region in their life in some way, whether good, whether bad. And for me to speak with them and for them to kind of grapple with that Queen's legacy as well, to really pull it into the contemporary. Because I think that, for example, the likes of Cleopatra, it's so distant to us. Her history has been so whitewashed. Yeah, and so, so sort of sexualized. So sexualized, so rooted in, you know, the histories of Mark Antony and Jesus. All yes, of the, like yes, yes. Totally like, true male gaze. Yeah. yeah. So what does it mean to grapple with her using, you know, the knowledge of someone who has grown up knowing Cleopatra's mm. grown up understanding how the rest of the world, especially the Western world, mm-hmm. is perceiving her history. And so for the sample chapter which I did, which was on Yasantwa of the Ashanti region, I managed to speak to this person who is Ashanti and she told me some really, really beautiful stories about just how she credits her grandmother with her knowledge like building her knowledge of Yasantua and these other pivotal figures. Um, her grandmother would just gather all of the young people um, in their compound and just regale them with these stories and just thinking about how that's also history yeah. work. Yeah, that like is an oral also, history. Exactly. Sort of through family, through community. Exactly. History work can take place via dance yeah. because a number of cultures do... like celebrate but also um, transfer this kind of knowledge through dance through like you said oral histories through writing for some of us right so there are so many ways through art Mm. um, that this history work can take place so I think that you didn't ask me, but I'm going to answer this question Please, that I've posed I'm, in my own I, head. I, I, I'm just loving this. I feel like I can't wait to read this book because I feel like I there's so much I don't know. Thank you so but much. That's, I but can't that, wait to read it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much of history and it's certainly something that I try to do now as a grown-up, but that I just feel like I... I mean, I think I had terrible schooling, but I, mm. you're never too old, are you, to go, let Absolutely me relearn not. this. Let me reconfigure how I view this thing. Mm. Let me challenge that. Let me... And yeah, and it's just... I mean, it just sounds fantastic that uh, that, though, that, that book is going to live in people's, you know, yeah. cases. Yeah. Sorry, you're about to pose a question to yourself in your head and then answer it. <laughs> please, please, continue with that. Thank you, thank you um, for picking up on that thread. <laughs> Just that I think that history is in a really exciting place, Mm. Um, especially the history work that's taken place in this country, especially with particular marginalised communities. Mm -hmm. I just think that there is a lot that is bubbling and I'm so excited for like the next 10, 15 years as to what will be uncovered even further. Yeah, I know that like I said, my friend Jade, she's got her book coming out in a couple of years and it's Rebel Citizen and it's thinking about black women's lives in Britain beyond Windrush, beyond, you know, because I think Windrush has been emptied out of what it actually means to mm-hmm. black communities yeah. in this country. It's been hollowed out. Would you, because we have listeners all across the globe, when you're talking about Windrush, yes. I mean, I could explain it, but I think that you'd probably do a much better version. <laughs> could you explain the, the people that we're talking about when we talk about the, the Windrush generation? Absolutely. So the Windrush generation, we're talking about people who migrated from the Caribbean, but specifically the Windrush Mm -hmm. was carrying many people from Jamaica in the late 50s, early 60s and arrived in the UK on the promise of um, the motherland, which is Britain, which had obviously 
empire had colonized the fuck out of these countries or at least had like manufactured commonwealth mm-hmm. and made them kind of I would understand them as like satellite colonies mm. and because especially post World War Two, the NHS it was essentially built by a lot of black yeah. African and Caribbean nurses who mm. had come over with the belief that they were helping to rebuild this nation yeah and about being sort of coming back being part of the workforce it was an idea that yes. people would be welcomed exactly. to be part of this sort of regrowth of a country that had been you know demolished by the second world war absolutely and then what they came to find was something really quite different very different um so that's kind of what we're talking about windrush Mm. um and it's important to mention that sort of in the last less than the last decade there was a, a, a lot of people that had come over as part of the windrush generation never received paperwork they Mm -hmm. were although they were very much invited to be part of this country Mm -hmm. there was then a lot that happened at the time then with Theresa May who went on to be Prime Minister but but I think it's important to 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 mention for the people that don't live in the UK that aren't aware of it it was a it was a, a real shame on the history of England that people were sold one thing given something very different and then not only were they given something very different they were then told and also you can't live here anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, sorry, yeah. Just no, I think absolutely. when you're mentioning Windrush, it's just important because I know that, you know, we'll have listeners all over the globe. I just want people of to course, really be able to understand. Course. No, absolutely. And I the, think the, the, the work. there's so much to grapple with yeah. around Windrush. But I think the ultimately it has now, because of this scandal that you were talking mm-hmm. about, it has now become like a catch-all for the beginning of black presence in this country, right. which is just obviously not true. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, one piece of body of work that's going to be coming out. And I just, I know that there's just, there's so much that we yet to understand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also what I felt with my dissertation and like my research project which was on contemporary black lesbian lives in the UK give me a little give me a little nutshell because I was because I, I as people know I love to do love to do a bit of research on my guests but <laughs> I couldn't really find that much about that other than that you'd shared the title of it yes. on your Instagram and I was like oh, I gotta ask about this <laughs> so tell me because I feel like this is something that I know bits and pieces about but yes. it is certainly not something that I have a great deal of knowledge of course, of course. Uh, about and honestly, there's there's very little out there, and I think that, and when I say out there, I mean in terms of publishing, in terms mm-hmm. of academic material. I'll start with just kind of how I came to this. Please, yeah. So I learned that there was a black women's movement in this country maybe five years ago, and. At this time, I was living in Peckham. So, like, pretty much right on my doorstep, there was a black women's centre where they had, like, weekly meetings in the late 70s and early 80s, like, just next to me. And I became so fascinated by it because we often were looking to the Angela Davises Mm -hmm. and the Asata Shakurs and all of these very pivotal African-American figures. But, like, what about here? And... So I started researching and reading more around it and getting really excited and then realising that 
the black women's movement, which was essentially kind of born out of this space of feeling rejected or maligned within the mainstream feminist movement, which is obviously overwhelmingly white. Mm -hmm. So when it came to thinking about black women's issues or, you know, black and brown women's issues, so thinking about how they were being, having like contraceptives tested on them without their knowledge and the whole Depo-Provera kind of scandal that took place in, I want to say the 60s, 70s when they were trying to bring these issues to the fore then just being told okay but we're trying to focus on like you know womanhood and you know feminine like feminism right now and that doesn't make space for your racialized experience and then also when trying to bring this to black liberatory spaces which were male dominated and black women in those spaces were understood to be you know taking a secretarial role you're doing the note taking you know the men are making the decisive kind of actions for these groups that's the kind of space that the black women's movement was born in and I was so excited by this and then began to slowly through just reading books like Heart of the Race and you know, charting the journey, realising that there was a malignment of black lesbians within this women's movement. And that almost in the similar fashion to the feminist spaces and the liberatory spaces, black lesbians were being told that, you know, thinking about who you sleep with is a luxury issue verbatim like that a luxury issue is utilized in you know a case study within heart of the race because um, we've got bigger issues because there are bigger issues you know than your specific exa- needs. exactly like okay. the racism isn't a luxury issue but who you choose to spend your nights next to is that obvious like fundamental misunderstanding yeah Um, how all these things oh my god also intersect right on so many different levels um but that was my that was my physicality of intersect (laughs) i don't know if you noticed it (laughs) for the listener i'm sort of putting one hand in front of each other each time but you got the gist you got the gist got the gist um but also alongside fundamentally misunderstanding what like sexuality and lesbianism Mm -hmm. is black men within the liberatory spaces were understanding the black women's movement as divisive to a black power movement it was like you're splitting us up and what's the point so to try and undermine or demean their work they would refer to them as a bunch of lesbians you know what you're all doing like you bunch of lesbians that kind of thing this all taking place like in like the late 70s going into the early 80s resultantly black women really pulled back from putting anything around lesbianism on their agenda and this built and built and built even to the point where one massive group called OAD which is was renamed as the Organisation for Women of African and Asian Descent. It was a focal reason as to why they kind of ended up disbanding because at one of their conferences, black lesbians were shouted down by other black women in the room because they wanted their own separate workshop on sexuality. And so that was kind of like a pivotal moment where 
black lesbians began creating their own like networks, support groups, informal from London to Birmingham to Nottingham to Leeds and creating their own like pockets, their own caucuses. So I think with coming into this kind of understanding that it was, as you can imagine, just like, whoa, okay. This is incredible because it was just seeing repetitions of issues that are still at the fore today. Like, you know, the somehow as a black lesbian or anyone who has overlapping identities, you're expected to divvy up parts of yourself Mm -hmm. in order to be accepted within a particular room or space. Yes, yes, Um, yes. But just like all of these internal frisions and fractures within any kind of movement. Mm. Yeah, I just I just found that so fascinating. So my dissertation tried to build on what is already in existence because I just I kind of wanted to theorize around black lesbian life. Mm-hmm. Like what did that look like on a personal, interpersonal and political level? So in my personal section, I'm thinking about black motherhood. Like what does it mean when lesbian mothers at this time were already being demeaned Mm -hmm. like across any kind of race and you were automatically understood as an unfit mother and could risk having your children taken Mm -hmm. away from you. And then to be a black lesbian, you were like the ultimate demon, especially because well, I guess I'm moving into the political, um, but the, you know, the Tory party would leverage all of this. So Labour Party funded um, the GLC, which was the um, gay lesbian unit in Harangay. And they were accused by Tory MPs of funding like loony left projects like this black lesbian, whatever you call Mm. it kind of thing. Um, So just being demonised in different ways. I was really interested in just like, how do you communicate with one another? How do you find, how did people find peer groups? you know and how do, and how would people literally find one another newsletters yeah but it's just, it's just so interesting and in there, there was oh obviously now because of social media we're all in touch you know that's how I got in touch with you to do mm. this but it's so you know it must have been if you were a black lesbian living in that time like I know what it was like when I was 14 in Portsmouth and I'd like heard of lesbians mm. I thought I'm, I'm there's there can't be many of us there can't right. be anyone like me it's so isolating so then to be back then yeah yeah I mean it must have been really life affirming to know that there was a group right someone had felt the things that you felt exactly exactly and that comes through again and again with all the support groups so Mm. my source material were newsletters and letters written by just individuals to this these periodicals and you had people saying like hi friend I'm a black lesbian um I'm I really like travel and I was just hoping that any black lesbian would come back to me and just you know tell me where you've traveled maybe in Africa and just like how were people towards you like things like this the questions that we're still asking and trying to answer today and yeah it was just it's it's incredible but like also there was so much there were so many parties like nunnery roads in Brixton was known as like dyke road like lesbian (laughs) road because there were so many like parties taking place there and to just like they would in these periodicals do like little reviews of like the nights that you should be going out to so like I think also 
maybe what we see is maybe like a complete dearth of like lesbian activity lesbian life during this period Mm. but there was so much so it's like how has it been documented and has it been considered worthy of documentation by various groups and obviously not which is why we're now realizing Mm. like oh my gosh there there is a gap here i want to know more and yeah i think that's hopefully what we're all trying to work towards would would i be right in assuming that I would guess that most of the things that would have been documented or written down would be things that are, you know, things that have a real political edge to them, you know, disruption or something like that. Whereas, like, the the queer joy, like, it's nice to know that there was a party mm. in Nunnery Road. It's nice to know that amongst all of this political goings on, that there was, you know, a great night out and mm-hmm. people mm. making friends and people falling in love. Absolutely. Because I think that's the thing that... So often with queer history, you know, just in general, so much of it is, you know, like, oh, what are we talking about? Like, are we talking about the AIDS crisis? Are we talking about mm. queer bashing? Are we talking about living in secret? Are we talking about the church rejecting people? Mm. It feels so infrequent that it would be like, oh, my God, and there was like a love story wrapped up in it. And it's like, well, tell me the love story. Let mm. me know that the love existed. Obviously, all the horrible stuff did. But, you know, the people, you know, caring for each other and... You know, there being sort of bits of joy. Like, that Mm. needs to be written down too. That Mm. needs to be remembered. No, I absolutely hear what you're saying. I think that, I guess, so much of this was probably indivisible for Mm. a lot of people. And I guess it's also thinking about, like, what do you understand care to mean? Because I guess care would be the black lesbian group Um, had set up a support network and she had kept it running even after they closed from her house for years. Yeah. After the fact, like, that to me is care as well. Oh, 100%, for sure, yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah. So, like, I think that even though it's obviously deeply political, there are glimpses of joy and pockets of joy scattered everywhere but even within those organizing spaces like reading accounts of people going to like an international lesbian conference in the late 70s and like the sheer excitement at being in a room with so many lesbians who call themselves by different names some of them are referring to themselves as zammies and things like that and being able to hear their like experiences and I think also to kind of position themselves a little bit more on international scale as Mm -hmm. well um I think those are the things that are very exciting but also like one of the many book ideas I have for (laughs) down the line um I'm just like I'm so interested in what black lesbian life looked like through grief so for example when the state isn't recognizing your partnership or your family like what does that mean for healthcare what does that mean Uh, for just like family life as well yeah and thinking about sex like i'm interested in especially you know the how lesbians have understood sadomasochism, for example. So what does that mean for les- black lesbians in this time who liked kink, who liked right. all of these various demonised things, even within lesbian circles? I'm interested in just, like, what did family formation look like? Like, how do you run a household and with your partner or partners yeah. 
with your children, with your child, and knowing that there is this very nuclear like ideal of what exactly and in this time when you are being demonized Mm. when you know adverts for that said that they were would be prioritizing applications from you know black lesbian spaces for example those would end up in the daily mirror or you know the telegraph or whatever it is and would be torn to shreds and would become like a huge like news story in that cycle and so like knowing just like these outside forces how do you try and build that bubble for yourself and try and enjoy some sort of family life Life, yeah. yeah so i think Definitely alongside like the political activism, like I'm very interested in, I think my whole practice is around like the everyday and like not the visible figures, not the people who have necessarily been published or whose accounts we are able to access relatively easily, Mm. but like the people who have come and gone and who, whose names might only be remembered by the people that they that loved them, them yeah. and knew them and what experiences do they have to share and how does this shape this collective history that we're trying to build yeah i think that's what i'm really excited by i'm really excited to know those things <laughs> I really excited Thank to you know so those much. things. Um, I hope I didn't miss explain what I meant when I was saying about the the little bits of people's lives. Just because you had said about you know someone saying I want to travel and different things, mm. just, it's just so nice to get those pockets of who someone was. Yeah, you, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the, like the, the it's, just, it's just nice to hear that those you know the idea of reading those letters or people writing it's just yeah yeah just like the everyday yeah, kind of it's, it's important not necessarily inane but just like the just everyday life. minutia yeah, yeah it's just the, yeah. the bits that go alongside the the bits that just keep things going along isn't it mm. yeah. get ready for the greatest roast of all time the roast of Tom Brady a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Were you always into history? Did you do journalism uh, at university? Is that right? Oh my god, no! No, I'm so <laughs> no, sorry. I didn't. What did you do? Did you go to Nottingham? Yes, I did. Okay, got one thing right. You know, um, <laughs> I did sociology. Which oh, I found sorry, you said so that before. Hard. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh, no! Like I've mentioned history, journalism. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's hard. I'm an interloper into basically the journalist space. I just started writing articles for like a uni magazine cool. um, and got into that. But history. I I think maybe because I'm a Capricorn I really enjoyed it because I find it very easy to see like what a source could have done more of or like how like someone's positionality shapes like what they're the saying storytelling. exactly yeah. I think I found I latched onto that quite mm. well quite early on were you always writing about stuff that was sort of directly from your experience because I know you talk about you know you talk about queerness a lot mm. and you talk about how you intersect different spaces was it always sort of through you no actually so i when i kind of started out i was doing like a lot of satirical pieces Mm -hmm. they tended to be around topics that are of interest to me which Mm -hmm. 
do yeah. fall into you know blackness queerness and just like people around me who kind of yeah reflect experiences that are familiar to me I would say yeah I did like a little bit of reporting if you can call it that <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact you sort of did a uh, dance as you did that <laughs> yeah when I'm very unsure I do a little neck jerk um, <laughs> but I think I definitely didn't understand myself as a historian right. until maybe like the last few years oh really um, as recent as that yeah I think that there's definitely been an imposter element just because of what we all tend to think history is yeah. and looks like. Yeah. And again, like what I explained earlier, I I think that I didn't understand in the way that I do today that history can take on so many different forms and it can mm. look like so many different ways. But I think I've, yeah, I've always had an affinity with history. Like the Tudor period is my favourite period. Oh my God, the drama. Yeah, really high end. The drama, <laughs> like. <laughs> I know, they need to, like, the fact that everyone's into the crown, I'm like, you want to go back a bit. Listen, <laughs> Henry VIII, bring him out here. <laughs> Anne Boleyn, oh my God, she was that bitch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I think there were always telltale signs. <laughs> that, you were, that you had to come out as a historian? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm still coming out, my God. <laughs> I mean, it never stops, that's the thing. When you found out about the... You said you were living in Peckham and you found out there was this black lesbian movement. Were you sort of heartened by the fact that people like you had been, like, in, that, in, that, in those very streets mm. before? Mm. Absolutely. I think that, like you spoke to, there's this element of feeling very isolated, Mm. feeling very, like you are the only one experiencing all of this. And then I think, especially as a black queer person on like a cultural level, there's the element of being told or like being made to feel that queerness is a an import of whiteness. Right. The, you know, we don't do that thing, like that stuff kind of here. Like it's very much a bourgeois kind of hedonistic kind of import and we don't want that. So I think that I was very excited to find or to be like discovering more just more Mm. because you know we have some really admirable figures today such as like lady phil Mm. but what about the people who don't necessarily puncture through the noise to you know be award-winning and to be internationally recognized what about the people who were just going about their day and they were black lesbians and they were living like that's i think that's what drew me and i think that's what still invigorates me so i think i'm heartened by their existence because i think that just existing as a queer person in this time then a black queer person then a black queer trans person like during this period of section 28 and like you said the AIDS crisis 
like how how did you function because mm-hmm. it's already hard enough today yeah um, were you at school during section 28 uh no no see no. i was okay but that's so just where i'm a little me. bit well i just think i went to a catholic school as well so i think Ooh. it was just not it was inconceivable that i would be gay not really from as much as my family because they they didn't really have any they didn't really know any gay people yeah. i think it was it was such a shock to my mum when i came out it was a huge shock even though the signs were really there <laughs> but 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 she didn't know what the signs were because she didn't know any gay right. people like she knew like a couple of gay guys that were like a laugh in the pub mm-hmm. like that was sort of it and she knew about Claire Bolding like that was literally it like it was Stop so it. <laughs> like it was <laughs> seriously like that it was there was just no understanding yeah. of that so i think that for me the i mean i certainly knew that i was gay at school but the idea of talking about it was mm. no 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 you can't have that you can't have it just you 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 just have to ignore that. You should, you don't have the, the luxury of of being gay. And then I I went into acting, and I, and I remember thinking as a maybe seventeen year old, I guess I got either get to be gay or be an actress because I thought you can't wow. be both. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll be an actress. And I I had a boyfriend, and then that's a whole other story. And then there was a real journey to me to me becoming this blatant leather that you see in front of you <laughs> with a wife and a kid and a place in Brighton um, but but I don't know that that's so different to people that were at school post section 28 like I don't know what was your schooling where did you go to school I went to Latimer school in North London right yeah I'm actually yeah North Londoner who migrated south wow south, people yeah. won't realise that's huge um, <laughs> huge guys huge um, huge, huge. but was it even a conversation that people were gay in your school? Would it have been something that would it, was it straight? Was was that so gay still said in the playground? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, sure. Oh yeah, and I didn't really come into my queerness until like I was, I want to say, eighteen, mm. nineteen. Like uh, I'm twenty nine now, so like a light little bloomer. Well, mm. in in yeah. terms of my age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you meet um, these 12-year-olds that are so confident. <laughs> right. And so I was doing the classic, like, drunk on a night, like a uni yeah. night out. Just like, yeah, like, I'm in the grey. Like, I could really fall for anyone, like, whatever kind of thing. Yeah. Gradually progressing to, like, I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really gay. <laughs> so I didn't really pay any attention unfortunately, because I thought I was straight. Right. It was not my business. And do you think part of that is because there's such a lack of lesbian representation? Or do you think you were just someone that came into your sexuality in general? Older. Mm, good question. Thank you. <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> I think that even if I saw a black lesbian when I was younger I probably wouldn't have personally identified like I was going to church until I was 15 until I was like I don't want to do this anymore so I think that I would have maybe struggled to make a connection anyway like Mm. I I don't remember having any kind of like internal yearnings when I was younger I think it was definitely going to uni and meeting more people and like you know having close friends who were queer gay lesbian 
having more conversations about sexuality, um, having more conversations about gender and realising just that there was a much broader spectrum than I had been taught and told and that exploration was encouraged and just starting to like think about like okay do I think this person is good looking like this woman is she good looking because like I want to emulate part of this or like do I fancy her (laughs) really grappling with those moments and then kind of going back over and thinking oh that teacher that I really liked when I was young was was that a lesbian thing or <laughs> like we've spoken on the podcast before about um intense female friendships about the oh and it seems gosh. it seems maybe we all had a few of them we definitely we're, we're like definitely you might have been a, confused by the fact they might want to have a boyfriend like well, why would you why would you want to do that um yeah there's there's just some nods <laughs> happening from Paula right now just just some nods and do you think that that version of Paula at, at university do you think like the way that you were talking about like writing and becoming a writer and your journey to writing and now the mm. fact that you've got this book that sounds incredible like did you did you have a vision of any of this in your future did you think you would be someone that would be sharing these stories that would be doing this sort of work not at all <laughs> that, well, that's great that's great and so and so that leads me perfectly to, to the final question of the show which is always I mean and it can be to do with your sexuality it can be to do, with, to do with your journey it can be to do with sort of from where you've come from to where you've got to now there might be someone listening to this show right now that is like that version of you mm-hmm. at university working out their way not sure where they fall in things and you know certainly didn't have any idea to like you know the incredible things that you're achieving and you're going to go on to achieve now if you could say something to that person or give them a word of encouragement what would you say i would say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with trying out like labels for example Mm. if that is a way that makes you feel affinity with a community or with a group which it did for me have some fun with your sexuality with your gender expression like have some fun with this kind of path this journey that you're taking and that we're all on and that we'll never reach the end of i went from you know understanding myself as bi-curious to bisexual because I was definitely no longer just curious to queer to lesbian which I which now feels right for me mm. especially alongside like the work that I'm doing and the things that I'm understanding every day and that might not always be true for me I might not always describe myself as a lesbian at one point I also understood myself as gay specifically and then I was realizing that I was scared of saying the word lesbian right oh i have felt so much like that in the past right yeah so like i totally deliberately like say lesbian because it's like what are you scared of who's gonna fight you this is something that within (laughs) within the course of this podcast of since i started it in 2020 that i have gotten more and more comfortable with calling myself and and people that listen to the show will will know that in earlier episodes even maybe eight eight nine months ago i would have said as a Mm. gay woman Mm. and it's something that and i'm 36 Mm. you know but i think it's that it's a really important thing i'm really pleased you've mentioned that that's really yeah yeah yeah. and you know it i think nothing is fixed 
And I think once we start embracing that and just if there is a specific term or community that is making you feel more like yourself, more whole, then that is okay. Like lean into that. But also that doesn't have to be true forever. Like that you might learn. We're constantly developing, evolving and discovering more about ourselves. So I would say just be gentle with yourself because... I, I think I was actually quite gentle with myself throughout this and it allowed me to just understand myself through different lenses, through different prisms and now I'm where I am now but I, I give myself the grace that this might not always be where I am and that's actually perfectly beautiful to be honest. That is a perfect way to end this conversation. Thank you so much Paula. I loved that. Oh, thanks. That was so great. <laughs> <laughs> 